1: There is a profound story here about what's happening to the very idea of citizenship, be it individual or corporate, in the new global economy. It used to be that citizenship in a strong and healthy state was universally prized because citizenship confers rights. But with citizenship also comes responsibilities, and it turns out that not everybody wants those. In the minds of some, if you can get the rights, but without the responsibilities, you're really onto something. In other words, there's a new class of people whose goal is to become above citizenship live in America, conduct your trades in the weaker regulatory arena in London, pay your taxes in Antigua or the Isle of Man, keep the rights, but offshore the responsibilities. The flip side is that there is a growing subset of people, like undocumented immigrants, who live below the level of full citizenship. If the first group is stateless by choice, these people are involuntarily stateless and have virtually no rights at all. For a country founded on the idea that rights are inalienable and inherent from birth, We've developed a high tolerance for conditional rights and conditional citizenship. And the one condition, it turns out, is money. If you have a lot of it, the legal road you get to travel is well-lit and beautifully maintained. If you don't, it's a dark alley, and most Americans would be shocked to find out what's at the end of it.
0: Matt Tybee is the author of Smells Like Dead Elephants, Spanking the Donkey, the Great Derangement, and Griftopia, Bubble Machines, Vampire Squids, and the Long Con that is Breaking America. His new book is The Divide, American Injustice in the Age of the Wealth Cap. Thank you for joining me, Matt. Thank you for having me on. This is such a fascinating book because we live in a world where we're surrounded by images of dystopia. In, in the future, yet your book offers us a vision of the present that suggests we're about two dirigibles away from any dy- <laughs> dystopia that's out there.
1: <laughs> right. Yeah, no, definitely. I think we're in In some ways, we are already there. Uh, that was one of the sort of discoveries the, uh, that I felt when I was researching this book is, is that it, we, we do live in a kind of society where we're Blind to a kind of schizophrenia that we've fallen into. And that is a dystopic reality, especially as it concerns the criminal justice system, which is the focus of this book.
0: You know, uh, you, at the very beginning of the book, you talk about being in the USSR uh, Mm -hmm. just before the collapse, and you describe this kind of uh, schizophrenic vision of the law that they experienced. And then I think you do a great thing is suggest that we're experiencing the same kind of thing in reverse.
1: Mhm mhm yeah no I'm, I'm this is embarrassing to admit but I'm old enough to have gone to college in in the Soviet Union I remember one of the first things I learned about living in in Soviet Russia was that everybody had to make hundreds or if not thousands of silent calculations every day uh, about how to navigate society because there were two sets of laws. There were the written laws, which were basically meaningless, and then there were the unwritten rules, which were the really important ones, which you had to worry about. And so, for example, when I went to school every morning, there were these kids who who were always trying to get blue jeans from us and other items by trading us rabbit hats and military gear and trading dollars with us. And a couple of times a week, those kids would get arrested. And then meanwhile, the directors of the university would walk right past those same cops wearing blue jeans, wearing foreign clothes or nice suits from Europe, and nothing would ever happen to them because the former group was the kind of group that got arrested and the latter group was the kind of group that didn't get arrested. And this was something that came naturally to the Soviets after many years of living in this society. They just instinctively knew who goes who gets in trouble and who doesn't. They woke up from that reality while essentially while I was there, and I think we're descending into that kind of delusion now where we now just think of some people as being appropriate for jail and others we just instinctively know are never going to go to jail. Like the heads of certain banks they're going to pay fines and they're going to get off and that's just the way things are and we we've come to implicitly silently accept that
0: one of the things that i really love about this book is you begin it with this examination of three brief statistics poverty up crime down prison population at historic
1: highs so with such a, a counterintuitive set of statistics since 1990, uh, violent crime in America has dropped 44%, but the prison population has gone from about a million people to 2.2 uh, million and change. We now have the largest prison population in the history of human civilization. It's not only doubled since 1990, it's quadrupled since 1980. We have more black men in prison or in the justice system now than were ever in slavery at any one time in the United States. So we have this enormous explosion of people under official government supervision, but crime is down, and yet what also doesn't make sense is that poverty has gone up during this time. So you would actually expect crime to go up during this period, but it hasn't. It's, it's gone in the other direction. And so none of this makes sense. It has to be something else going on. And what is that something? And, and that, that's what I was trying to answer with this book. I think it's a, it's a complicated question, and it's, there, the answer to it is, I think, very complicated.
0: That's one of the things I think that makes this book stand out is that you look at some very gray areas, some very complicated uh, scenarios, and as a writer, you had to first understand them yourself – internalize what has happened and then write it so that people who don't have the time to understand it and internalize it and digest it and cogitate on it are able to read it in your fabulously entertaining and raw prose. I'd like you to just talk a little bit about that kind of procedure. How much of this stuff did you have to internalize and how long did that take?
1: Well, I mean, that's the... the that's the job as journalists, right? We're like professional test crammers, right? We we start with a knowledge base of what's usually zero <laughs> on a the topic. Uh, then you have to. The job is to is to know the topic as quickly as possible to the point where you can speak intelligently about it, and then from there the job is to translate what you've learned to audiences as quickly as possible. And so there's a couple of things at work here, uh, in. My research for this book, I think everybody knows, everybody who's followed the financial crisis, they know that the heads of these big banks have gotten off. And also people know that there are a lot of people in jail for for sometimes silly reasons, and that we have this huge police presence. But what I tried to do was communicate a couple of things in sort of like emotional shorthand for, for people. One was the sort of uh, the crazy disparity between what happens to somebody at the lowest levels of society when they get caught for something like welfare fraud versus what happens to somebody who runs a bank who gets caught committing a billion dollar fraud. And you have to be able to tell that story in a way that is shocking and gets the reader and and gets them to understand the full scope of of that disparity as quickly as possible and that's you know it's 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 definitely a challenge because some especially some of the crimes in the white collar side they're just very complex and difficult to describe and you have to you have to find a way to for lack of a better term sex it up for people and that's 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 a difficult thing to do well,
0: you're an all pro at it. I think a lot of this has to do with your really entertaining pros. Let's talk about where this begins, which is with our current Attorney General, Eric Holder. Back in 1999, he was kind of a low-level functionary, and he wrote a little memo that had a huge impact through the
1: years. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he wrote this thing. This is way back in the late 90s, Van Deputy Attorney General, he's basically an unknown Justice Department official, Eric Holder, writes this memo that's now come to be known affectionately as the Holder Memo. And at the time, it was kind of a get-tough-on-crime document because its primary function was to give prosecutors tools they could use to go after corporate and white-collar offenders. But at the bottom of it, there was this little addendum that talked about something called Collateral Consequences. And all collateral consequences was, was uh, an idea that if you're a prosecutor and you're targeting a big, important company, and you're worried about the innocent victims of a criminal prosecution, like, for instance, the shareholders or executives who had no part in the wrongdoing, or maybe even just the citizens of the community where the, the company is headquartered, you can pursue other remedies, including non-prosecution agreements, deferred prosecution agreements, and especially fines. And this is simple it, it, it makes it makes a lot of sense in the abstract. The problem was that when he came back to office as the attorney general eight years later, we were now living in a society dominated by these two big to fail companies where the concept of collateral consequences was su- suddenly became all important and essentially became the supreme r- law of the land when it came to dealing with corporate offenders and So what was a little-known memo that gathered dust for years and years and years uh, after it was originally written in 1999 became this sort of cornerstone of American jurisprudence years later.
0: One of the things I think that this book does really well is describe—we talked a little bit about how we're living in a dystopia. You can also flip this back in time and suggest we're uh, one poor house away from a a Dickensian uh, uh, London— And what's interesting is is that in the USSR, one of the sets of rules was unwritten. And what you portray in this book is there are literally two sets of written rules for the different uh, ends of the spectrum. On one hand, you have these obtuse regulations covering the financial industry and those who work in it. And on the other hand, we're now crafting regulations for the very bottom of the barrel that put the police on an endless
1: dragnet yeah that's that's absolutely true it's it's a it's a great point the people people who run big financial companies in this country they have the world's best lawyers and what these lawyers do and i've talked to a lot of them and some of them are brilliant people and brilliantly funny people believe it or not and their jobs are to come up with intellectual justifications and rationalizations for behavior that otherwise you might describe as, at the very least, unethical and, at the most, criminal. And what they do is they try to find ways to to couch things in terms that make the behavior sound less extreme, or else to push the behavior into a realm of, you know, into a kind of regulatory gray area where it simply can't be seen by the authorities. You know, they, they, they move, you know, certain kinds of trading, for instance, into, into a black box where it's not monitored constantly by the state. And so even if a crime is committed, in some cases, a regulator might be looking right at it and have no idea what he or she is looking at because it it may, may have some kind of quasi-official sanction to it, Whereas at the bottom, if you if you commit welfare fraud, if you get a, a check that's too big one month and you forget to send the excess back, they're going to automatically generate a fraud case against you, and, and they'll use it, you know, whatever broad term applies to your conduct it might just be simple fraud it might just be simple theft. they don't need a specific statute to fit your individual uh, circumstance they'll they'll find something and make it apply i mean I had a I had one guy in New York who gets arrested for quote unquote obstructing pedestrian traffic uh, because the police just didn't like where he was standing and so he gets hauled in for that now that's technically part of the disorderly conduct statute this person wasn't being disorderly. He was standing in front of his own house after coming home from work. He was being quiet, but they brought him in. And so, yes, we have two sets of rules. One of them makes sense. One of them is, is a, a labyrinth of totally un, uh, indecipherable rules that are very easily manipulated by very good lawyers.
0: On one hand, on the high end, you have people who are essentially Bond villains who don't sit James Bond down and tell him his their plans to overtake the world. They just let it unfurl and tell everybody <laughs> that it's actually OK. <laughs> and so and, and part of part of this reason is, is because and you point to a great job of pointing this out, is that the people who used to be prosecutors now have come from the world of defense lawyers, and they're very Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm risk-averse.
1: Yeah, absolutely. This is a major change, because I talk to a lot of people who are either current or former prosecutors, and prosecutors, like real prosecutors, everywhere, they all have the same kind of personality. Prosecutors, cops, even investigative reporters, they all have... They don't do it for the money. They go into the job because they have a psychological thing inside them about catching bad guys, and it doesn't matter who it is, they just like getting offenders. And that's exactly the kind of person you want in the regulatory structure, that's who you want in your Justice Department, that's who you want monitoring corporate crime. And that kind of personality is disappearing at the white collar level and is being replaced by this new kind of creature who tends to come from the the white collar defense community and these people are not these sort of uh, relentless bulldogs for justice. They are deal makers. And they enjoy, I, I think what they're looking for in a lot of these cases is a resolution where they can sit all the parties down in a room and have them all walk out happy. And that's not the way justice works. In, in, in justice for the rest of America, somebody always walks away unhappy, we know, especially when they go to jail. So it's a profound difference because you just do not see that kind of person being a prosecutor uh, for the street offender. There's never any uh, that, that kind of intentional ch- clubby leniency that, that, that you would see at the white collar level.
0: One of the things I think that you do very well is to hone in on people on both sides of the spectrum and just tell their stories. And you're a great storyteller. You get down there on the street and talk about Tory Marone and tell us his story, which is a really a compelling look at what happens in the world of Frisk and Stop.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. No. So what happened was on the day of the HSBC settlement announcement. Now, just to back up a little bit, HSBC, one of the world's largest banks, largest bank in Europe, gets busted by the United States government. Incidentally, not for the first time, they were repeat offenders for having lax money-laundering procedures. And they admit to, among other things, laundering over $800 million for the world's worst drug dealers, including the Sinaloa drug cartel in Mexico, which is suspected in thousands of murders. Really, I mean, this is the worst kind of behavior that a bank can be caught doing. And they settle with the government, and it's a fine of $1.9 billion dollars no individual consequence for any individual nobody goes to jail nobody gets indicted nobody has to pay out of his or her own her own pocket towards the fine the only consequence is that somebody has some of the executives had to partially defer their bonuses for 5 years so i'm i'm following this and they're making this announcement in new york and i ran to the courthouse that day and i was asking around the public defenders i said What's the dumbest drug case you had today? And somebody put me onto a case involving, essentially, a dr- young drifter named Tori Marone, a, a white white guy here in New York, who got caught with a joint in his pocket, and he gets sentenced to 47 days at Rikers Island. Now he was a repeat offender; he had he had some priors in, in his in his jacket. But what's interesting about this is that. Here's somebody at the very bottom of the illegal drugs pyramid, right? I mean he's he's a consumer of drugs. In a way, he's almost a victim of the criminal activity. Uh and he gets a fairly serious sentence. I mean, you know, spending even a day in Rikers is serious, but if you gotta spend forty seven, that's there's there are things that can happen to you there. Meanwhile, juxtaposed against that are people who are enabling the worst and most violent drug dealers in the world at the top of the pyramid. And they're doing it. And this is a crime of intellectual choice for them. Uh, They're not doing it because they're, you know, they need the money. They're doing it because they're greedy and they get a walk. And that was what I was trying to do was tell tell the story of some guy who's just trying to sleep it off on the street. He gets he gets hassled by a bunch of cops. They make him, you know, empty his pockets. He's got a joint there. And bang, off he goes. And he gets a more serious sentence than the biggest bank in the world doing uh, enabling drug dealers.
0: You also talk about the LIBOR scheme, and these guys also sound like Bond villains. And one of the things you point out, I think that's so interesting, these guys who are really heavy-duty criminals, they're already mind-bogglingly rich.
1: Right. Yeah, exactly. Like, what's the... This is an interesting point because we, as a society, we've decided that people who commit crimes of what some people would call a lack of self-control, you know, who who are unable to to stop themselves from lashing out violently in a street fight, who commit acts of vandalism, who are high on drugs and drive their cars into telephone poles, those people are uh, worthy of very serious punishments according to our criminal justice system. However, the, the, the criminal who is careful and and, pl- and plans his crime, and in the case of the LIBOR scandal, you're talking about the biggest banks in the world, the richest people in the world, getting together and deciding to essentially monkey around with the DNA of the international economy, you know, interest rates. You couldn't possibly possibly conceive of a more serious financial crime than that because that affects almost everybody on earth the LIBOR manipulations, which was an elaborate price-fixing scheme, essentially, the same kind of thing like the mafia would do, except on an extraordinarily huger scale. These affected hundreds of trillions of dollars of financial products, and yet not one of them is doing any time. And why is that? Again, it's because I think of this silent calculation we make that, well, those aren't just aren't the right people who've we don't send those people to jail. We we send the other people to jail, and it's you're right. It's a James Bond crime. I mean, who who would even think to get together and 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 fix world interest rates so that you could make more money on your portfolio? That's crazy, but we're, it, it it's it's happening, <laughs> and uh, it's going unpunished.
0: By the time this laser cuts you in half, Mr. Bond. The interest rates will have risen 0.2%
1: around the world. That's right. That's right, exactly. <laughs> Stroking the cat. Right?
0: Yeah, exactly. yeah. Now, um, on the other hand, uh, let's talk a little bit about broken windows, uh, mm-hmm. a great prime crime prevention policy, wasn't it? A smashing mm-hmm. success.
1: Well, you know, look, to be fair, broken windows maybe it worked. I mean, who knows? I mean, there, there there's a way of looking at it and, and saying, well, first of all, what is broken windows? It was this theory that that they, they started to experiment with in New York in the early 90s. And the concept was, if you start busting people for things like jumping a subway fare, they'll be less likely to leave the house that morning with an illegal weapon, because you might be looking at time in addition to a fine if you get caught. So... In practice, how does that work? Well, you instead of cops ignoring, you know, minor behavior. And I, I grew up in a Manhattan where, if you played basketball on the street as I did, you could you could light up a joint openly, and a cop could walk right by, and nothing would ever happen to you. That was the 80s, right? In the 90s, all of a sudden, people were getting braced and arrested for everything, including jumping turnstiles, riding the wrong way down a street with your bicycle, having an open container on the street. It's gotten to the point where, you know, for this book, one of the last years that I looked at for this book, there were 80,000 people given a summons in one year just for open container violations. 20,000 people for riding a bike the wrong way down a sidewalk. 50,000 marijuana citations, even though marijuana is decriminalized in New York City it has been since 1977 as long as you keep it hidden but what they do in stop and frisk is they make you to empty your pockets so it becomes a crime at that point so this this policy has resulted in in basically the police fanning out into into bad you know into into these tough neighborhoods and they're executing what one city councilman described as an epidemic of false arrest where they haul on everybody and the theory is they throw back the innocent ones, they take the people who have guns or warrants, and they prosecute them, and everybody else gets thrown back. But in practice, as I found, that that's not the case. People get pushed through the system anyway for these dumb violations, and these, they can have profound consequences on their lives.
0: And they can have profound physical consequences for the cities that make those arrests in terms of fines and other ways to generate income.
1: Oh, yeah. No, it's, uh, I mean, I was at, it's almost comical. I was at one misdemeanor court hearing, and essentially, this is a court, it's, you you will never see a white person in this court, right? And all it is, is people who get summonses for, for dumb things like open container violations and public urination and, you know, bicycles and uh, being r- the wrong way on a sidewalk, et cetera, et cetera. This endless line of, of non-white people in this courtroom and they're being brought in and the judge shows up one morning and he he cracks his gavel and and sort of jokes to himself, "Welcome, we take Visa and Mastercard here. Step right up to the front, you know." And all he's really doing is just sucking these fines out of these people who can't pay. And yes, it's a revenue generating activity for the city. And it it happens all over the place. I mean, everybody who gets arrested for a misdemeanor in New York you have to get a, uh, a DNA test, and you have to pay for your own lab. So that becomes uh, another surcharge you pay. There's another $200 surcharge you pay for getting, getting charged with a misdemeanor crime in the city. So it's this weird, endless sort of panoply of little fines and, a, and, a, and, and charges that people who can't afford them have to pay. Whereas on the other side, the fines never actually come out of the pocket of the actual offender, which is, which is crazy.
0: It's a fiscal version of the perpetual motion machine.
1: <laughs> it is. It is. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I love
0: this description of the greatest bank robbery you never heard of. This is such an amazing tale. And w- what's really fun is to, to read about this is that you can kind of look up these people. I looked up Lisa Fife, who has mm-hmm. a, plays a very uh, small but very important role. She still works at the firm. <laughs> where that where she made her infamous statement that was essentially the linchpin in the transfer of wealth that was just this astonishing amount. So talk about investigating this huge robbery that has gone completely unnoticed.
1: This yeah this was an amazing story that I I got onto. Years and years ago, when I was talking to a whistleblower for, from Lehman Brothers, uh, and this was a lawyer who had worked at the firm who had gone to the SEC before uh, the company blew up and had complained that there were some unsavory practices going on with the way the executives were representing their stock options to the tax authorities. And so he's telling me all about this and about how the SEC ignored him, and if they had listened to him, Lehman Brothers might have been investigated earlier, and it could have been saved, which is probably all true. And then offhandedly, he says, oh, and by the way, you know, the company ended up getting transferred to Barclays in the biggest bank robbery in the history of the world. And I said, well, what are you talking about? And he tells me this whole story, and I end up, this is what became the genesis of this chapter, which was that... When Lehman Brothers went out of business, it was taken over in part by the British bank Barclays, which acquired it in a deal where they represented to the court that they weren't making any money on the transaction. But as it turned out, they made an enormous profit on the transaction by sort of secretly moving huge amounts of Lehman's uh, assets onto their side of the docket while depriving Lehman's creditors, the people who were owed money by the dying company, of billions and billions of dollars. And this was all done in this incredible, like, pre-dawn legal skullduggery that's almost impossible to explain. And all this brilliant lawyering where these people basically divided up the corpse of one of the world's biggest financial institutions, and behind closed doors, in a in a, in a weekend of just high high-powered lawyering, shifted somewhere between five and eleven billion dollars uh, away from Lehman's creditors and, and into their own hands. I mean, it's just an incredible story that nobody ever heard about, but it happened, and it's yet another example of something that would take place, and there's no law enforcement response to it because no one would even know where to start <laughs> in investigating it.
0: Now, with a case like this, I'm wondering: you gather the facts and you write them down, presumably on note cards or something, it, and then you have to write it out. Do you have kind of intermediary steps like spreadsheets or diagrams where you kind of lay this out? Because reading it, it's a page-turning piece of fiction. fixed uh, reads like a page-turning piece of fiction. It's nonfiction, and right. it's really entertaining to read too because of the you're kind of you have a a shall we say, a salty prose style.
1: Right, right. Yeah, well, I mean, one of the things that's nice about writing about anything that's been adjudicated in the courts is that some very smart people have always already written up a complaint, which is, is a kind of narrative about everything that happens. So there's always a sort of a working document that you can start with where you, you can see at least all the principal markers in time, you know, and all the major events in, in the story. And then you from from there you have to, because the most interesting nuggets are always sort of deep in, buried in the evidence. So you have to look at all the exhibits and spread them out. I don't have any particular method for that, but I, I think it's important to understand that these, especially with these legal stories that I'm taking advantage of the work of lawyers who have done thousands and thousands of hours of research and sifting through thousands and thousands of emails and, car- and correspondence and, and spreadsheets and crunching numbers. And they're distilling it you know, for the purposes of trying to get a legal action done. And as a side benefit, it, tr- it also turns out to be a, a thrilling story if, if, you're, if you choose to go that route as well
0: and the story was also happened to be distilled by one of the principals on the back of a manila folder
1: oh yeah no no it's incredible i mean uh, that was why i was so attracted to the story so there's this great scene in the story where where the the lawyer who's representing the creditors of essentially representing the creditors of Lehman Brothers which is like everybody in the world right i mean the list of people who who were owed money by lehman included everything from wineries in Oregon to orphanages in Spain to, you know, hedge funds to, you know, Saudi princes to everybody in the world was owed money by Lehman. And they're waiting to hear how how much stuff is going to be left over for them. And there's this weekend meeting in a skyscraper where all this is being hammered out and they can't get any information from the Barclays lawyers about what they're going to get. And then finally, a few hours before everything is going to be presented to the judge, after they've been begging and begging and begging for over a day to get information, the lawyer for the Barclays side comes over, grabs a manila envelope, and essentially diagrams in two minutes the biggest bankruptcy purchase in the history of Finance, uh, and and I, you can actually see in the book a copy of this, of this little squibble, uh, and in that squibble you see you see the, the calculation where they where they move five billion dollars, uh, from one side of the ledger to, to another, through, by means of this, very suspect explanation that the market moved over the weekend, and that's why we've you know there's been this loss, but it's a fascinating uh, sort of corporate drama.
0: It's the big-scale corporate version of the the dog ate my homework.
1: Yeah, exactly, exactly. They're 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 waiting to hear that they're going to get billions and billions of dollars, and and all of a sudden this lawyer comes out from behind uh, an office door somewhere, and and he's like oh, yeah, we're sorry, by the way, you're going to get $5, million, $5 billion less than you expected, and, oh, here's why. And, you know, he, re-writes, he, he writes it on the back of a folder. That, I mean, that, that's what 76,000 creditors got is, is a little diagram on the back of a folder.
0: One of the things you do in this book is to create tension going back and forth between these uh, the Bond villains and the people who are, you know, in, living in an Orwell novel, Or uh, or either an Orwell or a Dickens novel or maybe a Kim Stanley Robinson novel, Uh, and so (laughs) talk about uh, the the far-reaching effect of the of the four uh, characters two eight seven G.
1: Oh, the Secure Communities Act. Yes, the uh, yes,
0: exactly (laughs) the deportations.
1: Right. So this is a new rule that I knew nothing about. Just to back up for a moment, there's a subtext to this whole book which is kind of embarrassing. It's it's kind of a white guilt story underneath it all because there's, you know, when I started doing all this research, I was running in, in all directions. I was running into all these crazy sort of mindless injustices that were existing all around me that I knew nothing about, and I had never asked, bothered to ask any questions about how certain kinds of people live. And one of the things that I never knew about was what it's like to, for an undocumented immigrant and what what kinds of things you have to worry about. And this new rule, 287G, this part of the Commun- Communities Act, essentially deputized the entire law enforcement matrix of you know, the state and local law enforcement to act as immigration agents. So if you, I, like I found a case where somebody gets caught fishing without a license in Georgia and the game warden brings the person in and places an immigration hold on that person and that person person ends up deported. So now it's not just ICE you have to worry about if you're a, uh, an undocumented person. You got to worry about the game warden when you're fishing, you got to worry about local cops, you can't get in a car accident, you know, you can't do anything. There's, you know, a, a million law enforcement officers in this country of one type or another and now you have to dodge all of them. And so this, this again it has you're right it has far re- reaching consequences for anybody whose papers are not totally in order and it, it becomes a, a constant struggle to get from one place to another uh, so much so that you know in, in a couple of towns that I looked at there were taxicab networks uh, that had developed where people were so afraid to be Either driving their own cars or riding their own bicycles, that they took cabs everywhere, even though it cost more, uh, because um, they were so worried about being pulled over and stopped uh, by the by just the ordinary police, uh, and ending up that same night in Mexico or, or wherever.
0: These roundups are big cash generators for the for the. Counties for the cities for the police departments and also for a burgeoning private jail system headed by CCA, who, as you point out, their ad- lobbyists were advising Brewer when she was writing her anti-deport her anti-immigrant bill.
1: Right, right, exactly. Yeah, Jan Brewer. Yep. Yeah, the CCA lobbyists. You find. It's funny because I've done a lot of talks about this already and there are a lot of people who want to who want to lay uh blame f- for this entire thing at some inherent flaw in capitalism which which inevitably drives us to um uh, have a profit motive in things like the mass jailing of uh you know, undocumented immigrants and and you know low low income uh, people, and I had always resisted that line of thinking because, to me, this this was more a political and cultural phenomenon than a than a than a financial one. But you do see these financial motives everywhere in the book and in the story. That there's always somebody who's making more money, whether it's the you know the the, the company that owns the detention center where the immig- Ill, undocumented immigrants are, are moved through. Or like, for instance, just in the case of something like foreclosures, where if you actually look at a foreclosure document, you'll see that the sheriff's department, the local sheriff's department, always gets a pretty healthy cut, like a you know one thousand or a fifteen hundred dollar cut per per foreclosure, and so they become part of this matrix of people who have a financial interest in you know in, in injustices of, of this type, and so. I do not think that, that that this is part of the problem that that there are just too many people who are financially invested in making this whole thing uh, keep going.
0: We live in Ramora world.
1: <laughs> well, right, yeah. We're it's funny because we're uh, as several people that I talked to in this book pointed out, we're in this sort of post-industrial phase of America's existence where our, our gigantic manufacturing economy is 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 disappeared or is disappearing and what do we have left we have lots of poor people and we have lots <laughs> lots of people to deport lots of people to imprison and that's kind of the last remaining growth industry you know if you look at the subprime mortgage crisis the the brilliant insight that wall street had leading up to that crash was that Low and middle income people who were desperate enough to take out mortgages with no money down were a growth industry. They were the last advantage that America, uh, the last thing that they had to sell, was uh, the debt of poor and struggling people, and so they found a way to make. Millions or even tens of millions of these loans, and disguise the quality of them, and then sell them off to investors in all over the world. So, in that in that scandal, it was also poor people who are a growth industry. And this it's it's kind of the same thing. It's not now. It's not. We're not just selling them houses. We're making them actually prisoners and making money off of it.
0: One of the things I think you do in this book really well is with Alvaro's story. He's a illegal immigrant from Colombia who gets shot back over the border. And you tell us what happens on the other side of the border, which we hear a lot about what happens getting there, but not what happens on the other side. And that's equally shocking, if not more so.
1: It's it's a crazy story. This is a Colombian immigrant, a guy who had a, has a successful construction business, but he's undocumented. He lives in Georgia. He's driving home one night. He gets stopped by the police so he's in trouble, right? Because now he's been—he's got an immigration hold on him. He has a fake ID. He doesn't want to go back to Colombia, so he represents to the, the authorities that he's a Mexican. They deport him to Mexico. They put him in chains. They—they they take him through this whole process where they bring you to the border. They march him across a bridge. He walks into Mexico, and is immediate—almost immediately—kidnapped by the Zetas. The you know the infamous drug and terrorism gang who in turn realize that he has relatives of means back in the United States and they ransom him in an attempt to get money out of those people and they and they bring him back across the border to get money out of his relatives so it's this it's crazy iCE essentially drops. Uh, all these people into the hands of these vicious Mexican gangs who in turn terrorize these people even more and, and bring them back across the border. You know, That's the ultimate irony of the thing. One part of the, the story that I had to leave out was that this actually happened to him again. Subsequently, I wasn't able to write this in the book, but Alvaro went through a very similar situation later. So it, it's, it's a crazy cycle of just exploitation on both sides of the fence.
0: Tell us the story of Prem Watsa, who is... (laughs) This is something that, again, you can't make this stuff up. I mean, this is beyond the the reach of fiction writers.
1: Right. Yeah, no, this is crazy. Prem Watsa, he's the Indian-born CEO of a Canadian insurance holding company called Fairfax. And in the early 2000s, one of the most celebrated hedge fund investors in America, a short seller, which is somebody who bets against companies and, you know, as opposed to a long investor is somebody who bets on companies to succeed. Jim Chanos, a, uh, a celebrated short seller, some one of the people who helped uh, uncover Enron, who was famous for targeting companies who had problems with their books. He and some others decided that Fairfax was a crooked company. They bet heavily against the firm. There was research issued, uh, some somewhat dubious research that was released. The company didn't go out of business quickly enough for these hedge fund investors, and so they resorted to other tactics. They uh, essentially hired this kind of quasi, again, James Bondian wet man, this person named Spyro Conagoras.
0: It sounds spends like years. a James Bond villain. It really it, does, doesn't it?
1: I mean, it's crazy you couldn't make up the guy's name if you wanted to. Uh and Spyro spends years on this campaign of ridiculous harassment of the com- of the company in an attempt to pressure them into something, I don't know, surrender. It's it's really hard to say, but they they do things like send threatening and, and and disturbing letters to the priest where the CEO uh, the this Canadian CEO worships on the weekend they do prank calls to the cancer stricken stricken secretary of the CEO in the middle of the night they have people driving in front of houses knocking on doors for of, of executives to try to rattle their cages they break into hotel rooms and leave things in the executives rooms and we can see because of email correspondence back and forth, that some of these hedge fund guys were enjoying this part of the process to the point where that was was what it was all about, not even the money. It was just harassment of this company. I mean, you have one email where a a pretty famous hedge fund director is saying to Spyro, you know, I want that bleep's head in a box talking about WhatsApp. And there's all these just endless amounts of these profane communications back and forth. And what I was trying to point out with this story is that some of this may have been illegal. Um, it's it's hard to say exactly. Uh, a private suit based on a RICO claim, you know, a racketeering claim, has failed already. But regardless, these the one of the things that people always say is well, the people on Wall Street who do these things, they're they're not bad people in the same way that criminals are bad people they just bend the rules a little bit but in this case these were bad i mean this is as bad as behavior gets just on a human level and it goes unpunished
0: that's one of the things I think you do a great job, a really brilliant job demonstrating it with this. Just with the the language, using your language as your prose style and echoing that off these kind of telegrams these people send, I mean, it's just really wild. And, and so how much of this, your prose style, is inspired by what you find out there?
1: Well, I, I mean – I'm always attracted to these kind of labyrinthine stories. I think all, all writers spend their entire lives in a process of trial and error to try to find what works for them. And and you know, I, I originally wanted to be a, a you know a comic novelist, and I turned out to be terrible at that. And uh, but these these stories are like in the truest sense of the word. They're they're the darkest kind of Comedy, actually, because they're about behaviors uh, of people who are completely blind uh, on a moral level to the, their, you know, their own behaviors, their own actions, and they commit these incredibly ingenious capers. And yet, at the, on the flip side, even even as ingenious as they are in the in the one area of human endeavor, they're complete, completely juveniles and completely uh, inexperienced emotionally on the other side. They just have no basic sense of decency or anything. It's a bizarre and almost, I mean, from a literary point of view, it's incredibly compelling, but it's also disturbing. And that's, that's what I was trying to convey.
0: Well, I, I think you do so brilliantly. I mean, while you said you wanted to write comic novels, in a sense, these are comic novels, except for the unfortunate part that they're true, which is right, deep, right. <laughs> deeply disturbing, makes them both more frightening and more funny. A- and when we get to the more terrorizing side, uh, let's talk uh, about the joys of welfare.
1: Oh, well, I mean, uh, so I, I had to learn a lot of obviously I'm a white Bourgeois guy who lives in New York and never had to think about any of this stuff, and uh, I had to learn about how how welfare works, and it's it's an incredibly draconian system. I mean, one of the things that I, I learned about it was how that people who apply for public assistance they essentially have to every every quarter they sign this form where it says, you know, I, the undersigned, on upon penalty of perjury and you know prosecution I attest to the following and then you basically write this mini biography with all the facts of your life in it you know who you're living with what your job is how much you have in assets whether you have a car whether you have insurance etc 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 and as soon as you sign that document it goes into a big computer and there's this is again the dystopian sort of James Bond thing the computer starts cross-checking your answers with what it knows about you already. Maybe you registered a car somewhere. Maybe somebody with your name registered a car somewhere. Maybe one of your neighbors has already called into a welfare office and said that you have a a boyfriend coming over three or four nights a week who picks up the bill sometimes. So as soon as there's a, a discrepancy, the big computer automatically generates a fraud case. And what I found was is that once that happens, once it gets to that point, there's really no outcome except for a negative one for the people who are you know, caught up in this stuff. They eventually end up paying some kind of price, and it's unstoppable. And it's, you know, you're, you're essentially your whole life becomes a potential fraud case, uh, all the facts of your existence. Uh, whereas, again, um, again, on the other side, if you're a bank that took a federal bailout, you're also a welfare recipient, but none of this happens to you.
0: One of the things that's really nice about this book are are the illustrations. Mm -hmm. I I think they give it a certain... uh Again, I, I've come back to this kind of uh, Dickensian feel for your, your narrative and the way this book feels. It feels—Dickens um, himself did a bit of, of kind of muckraking journalism, if I'm not mistaken, and he, that's how he used his novels. And so you give us this great—we have a great picture uh, of uh, Linda Almonte. So talk about Linda Almonte <laughs> uh, uh, and her case, which is really, really interesting.
1: Sure. And just to back up about the art that you mentioned, I mean, that that's Molly Crabapple, who is who's sort of the unofficial artist of Occupy. She and I met during the protests um, and she, I think, was perfect for this project because she specializes in these kind of like Hieronymus Boshian portraits of dystopian machines and so she she has all these terrible portraits of of all these things that we're talking about and so I think the art was really it was we, we kind of like mutually inspired each other for this book I think that was a cool thing and, and the cover the cover I think looks looks great so I just wanted to give her a shout out now about Linda Almonte you know she's she's an employee who worked for J.P. Morgan Chase and she discovers that the bank is selling judgments to a debt collector. Essentially, the same thing again that that mobsters do. That you know, when they don't want to collect debts themselves, they'll send them, to sell them to some local leg breaker who will come collect the money himself. They do this. The you know, a big bank doesn't want to spend the time and energy to collect your credit card debt, so they'll sell sell that debt to a debt collecting agency who will come and harass you until they get your money. But what she discovered was that. The judgments they were selling were, in many cases, inaccurate. That they were selling the judgments of people who didn't even owe money to Chase. In some cases, they were selling judgments of people who, to whom Chase owed money. And so she tries to, she tries to bring this to light, and she thinks she's going to be this huge hero in the company because she's uncovered this huge error. Instead, she gets fired, and she starts down this this process of. Becoming a whistleblower, which, as people like Edward Snowden are finding out, or Chelsea Manning in modern America, that's just not a good thing to be. The people do not re- respond well to people blowing the whistle, and she starts down this this experience of not being able to get anything done about it, and she ends up being the one who suffers the more more punishment than the bank, which is actually guilty in the case.
0: One of the things that I, I you can't help when you read this book, but just feel a virtually insane, incoherent anger. I mean, <laughs> it's a kind of book that makes you glad you're not holding a weapon at the time. <laughs>
1: well, that's I, good to hear. I guess. I mean, I think that's that's sort of the idea of of, of the book is because when I started this project, I, I again, it was during the Occupy protests I was. Thinking about what my next book would be about, and I I had already done a lot of these stories about companies that were engaged in these, you know, wide scale capers, and none of the executives got in trouble, but I I didn't know a lot about the other side of it, you know, what happens to people on the other end, and so I went on this journey where I had to learn all about this for myself because again, I, from my insulated, you know, white existence, I just didn't know a lot of this stuff, and so. When when you set, it's it's only really when you when you juxtapose a woman who, for some penny any fraud, uh, welfare fraud, loses her kids, that and you set that against somebody who creates a billion dollars in in phony loans and gets to keep a four hundred million dollar fortune. That's that. It, it, it isn't until then that you realize the full insanity of this whole thing, and and you and there's no way to not get emotional about it. It's just, uh, I, I tried to write it in a way that didn't just encourage people, and I, I, I didn't rant about it. I didn't say you should be angry about this. I tried to just show it because it's bad enough, you know, uh, just to just to see it, uh, and hopefully that's that's the effect that it has. That it'll get people angry enough to at least talk about it.
0: I've been speaking with Matt Taibbi. His new book is The Divide, American Injustice in the Age of the Wealth Gap. Thank you for joining me, Matt.
1: Thanks so much, I appreciate you having me on.